This is the Kingdom Movement Podcast, a place where we will explore through conversation how discipleship, theology, and community really can transform our world. Hey guys, it's Jake and Paulo back with another episode of the Kingdom Movement Podcast. And so far, we have been working through the biblical story. Um, in our last episode, we talked about kind of the background, a bit of the different peoples and movements, expectations, thoughts, and feelings um, surrounding the time of Jesus. And I'm happy to say, I feel like this series has been building up to this point. So, Uh, We are finally arriving to Jesus in the kingdom of God. So today we're going to start the life of Jesus, his ministry, um, in order to like kind of compact that. Because in each one of these episodes, it's hard. We're covering, you know, potentially hundreds of years of content, uh, many, many books of scripture. So how do we take the gospels? This is kind of the question Paul and I have been looking at. How do we take the gospels and like compact this so that we're not like, getting bogged down by all these individual stories and all these things. So we really want to just more talk about kind of the main themes, maybe the key terms that Jesus used in his ministry, like what these are all about, and really what was Jesus doing, right? Was he just someone who went around and said a lot of nice things, did some miracles, or was there like more of a purpose to it? So we're not going to be talking about like the individual stories of the Gospels today, but more like what was behind the things that Jesus did and the key moments of his ministry. We'll touch on a few of those. Um, but yeah, we're going to start today. I think it's really important to talk about the Gospels specifically because this is where we get the story, the upfront accounts of the person of Jesus um, so yeah, Paulo, maybe do you want to explain, there's a term in academia, ac- academia, um, uh, that we use called the synoptic gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or sorry, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then there's John, which is considered a different kind of gospel. Do you want to maybe touch on that idea real quick? Because I don't know if, if our listeners have read all four gospels, um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a similarity to them that John doesn't. John feels kind of a like a little bit different. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that to begin with. Uh, hey guys. Oh, sorry. This is the first time <laughs> you guys hear my voice. So yeah, hey guys, this is Paolo. Um, this, I feel like this was one of the things that when I saw, I wanted to kind of leave it to you. Okay. Yeah, so. Okay, no problem. So basically with the synoptic gospels, um, there's this idea within academic study that Matthew and Luke have drawn upon the Gospel of Mark so that Mark is a little bit earlier than Matthew and Luke. So they're using Mark as a common source as well as their own eyewitness testimony. So I think that's a good place to start is the Gospels are named after the person that they believe wrote those specific Gospels. So Matthew, the disciple of Jesus, the tax collector. Um, Mark is a guy named believed to be John Mark, which you do hear about him. He's the John Mark that tags along with Paul and I believe it's Barnabas. Yeah, Barnabas on their journeys. And Paul actually kind of has a falling out and then a restoration with. But long story short, John Mark's gospel is 
basically believed to be the account of Peter. So he was close to Peter and he took basically notes and wrote down what Peter's eyewitness perspective of Jesus was. Then Luke is also a travel companion of Paul on his ministry journeys. He's a Gentile and his kind of desires to create an accurate account of what exactly happened. So he's a little bit after the time, or he's alive when Jesus is alive, but he's uh, he's writing his gospel after the time of Jesus, basically getting lots of different resources. You know, this is not like something we know for sure, but he could have potentially, you know, interviewed Jesus's mother, Mary, you know what I mean, and got her account of it. And so he's basically gathering all these different wit- eyewitness accounts and putting it together in a gospel. And that's basically what he says. And then John, John, there's a little bit of debate between who exactly is John, but I would say um, there's a leaning towards this is the John of the three um, closest disciples. So Peter, James, and John. So he is the beloved disciple. He says, I am this disciple, right? In his own writings, he refers to himself as this. So it's believed to be John's account of Jesus written a little bit later than the other gospels. Um, And so that's why there's a lot of things in John that aren't in the other gospels and vice versa with kind of maybe the idea of like these other gospels have circulated around already. So John is like giving us a different perspective than those gospels because it's kind of like you write a book. Like, I'm not going to write the same book as someone else on the same history. I'm going to give my perspective on it. And so it's believed that John just kind of pulls some things out that the other authors didn't touch on, right? And even in the Gospel of John, he says, if everything that Jesus was did was written down, the whole world couldn't contain it. You get it. So these guys are selecting and arranging what stories are important for those who wouldn't have seen Jesus in person, for them to understand like who Jesus was, I guess. So maybe we kind of touched on the next thing of where did they come from. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on the Gospels that you want to share? Uh, it's just one thing that I, I don't know if I would say a question. But yeah, kind of a thought or question that I had when I was getting, uh, getting ready for this podcast is once you start... You, you, you make a research, you realize that these books were written a little bit, like, a few years after, uh, after Jesus, after Jesus yeah. died. You know, so for me, uh, and if you see these stories, you know, they kind of, like, it's, you can see some aspect of development from the, from the, the author themselves telling the story of themselves in the process when Jesus is still alive and then you can see them developing and studying and understanding everything has like when you read the book you start like, oh yeah here this is this the same person it's kind of mm. a different person so for me I'm just I was just thinking is this kind of like them starting to just realize starting to just put all the pieces together and, and everything because most of the things they wrote uh, they're kind of the things that they were teaching you know, those are, mm-hmm. like, they, those are accounts they were teaching and then they, they brought them all together and then ended up writing those books. So I'm just like, is this the time they took to kind of just process and analyze everything to be able to compile all these well, very well organized books? Yeah, I think we'll dedicate a whole episode too to talk about like the manuscripts, like what exactly is the Bible, how is it put together, all that stuff. But to maybe just answer your question, yeah, I believe the earliest... 
again, this is somewhat guesswork by scholars. They can't tell us for sure. The earliest one they believe is Mark, written around in the 50s. So to give context, Jesus died anywhere around 30 to 31 AD. So this is written around anywhere from like 50 to 56 AD, so about 20 years later. But I think when you read the book of Acts, you can see and recognize like there's a lot going on, right? And the first thing people think about is not always the, especially in those days, in an oral culture, is to write it down. You get what I'm saying? So that um, I think that's part of why the time has passed. But even in the Gospels themselves, you'll see that um, the Gospel writer will say, like, the disciples didn't realize this until Jesus had died. And then once Jesus had died they and rose again, they recognized that this was Scripture fulfilled. So yeah, there is kind of a... Um, a back projection put on in the sense of they're very real and honest um, in the sense of they don't try and make themselves out to look like heroes or really competent people. <laughs> they, they are raw about how incompetent they really were as followers of Jesus. Um, the women as witnesses is something we'll get into maybe um, in the next episode, but that's not left out where it is left out in later accounts, not gospel accounts, but later commentaries or comments about the resurrection so there's some of that stuff that's floating around in there but i think for the sake of time um we just wanted to touch on like what i you know where do we get the story of jesus it's in the first four books of the new testament um and those are called the gospels matthew mark luke and john and matthew mark and luke are slightly different than john and we can maybe dedicate a whole episode to go into the details but so the the reason why we say that is because they're different we're going to have to take pieces from different books. So like all four Gospels do not have the birth narrative of Jesus, only Matthew and Luke. But all of them have a guy named John the Baptist. So let's start there. John the Baptist is Jesus's cousin. He's born and prophesied before Jesus. Basically, long story short, um, John's dad goes in the temple to basically do the ritual or whatever. And an angel of the Lord visits him and tells him he's going to have a son. Just like kind of the same story of, you know, Abraham and um, uh, 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 I'm blanking on his name, Samuel's mother. And like there's just kind of this line of like people who are old who can't have kids. Um, and God comes and he says, hey, you're going to have a kid. He doesn't believe the angel. The angel makes him not be able to talk for a little bit. And then his wife gets pregnant. Um, Mary also gets pregnant at this point. By the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit comes and tells her, you're going to have son, Emmanuel, which is promised in the book of Isaiah, God with us. Um, and so basically John becomes this uh, prophetic figure or is promised to be and grows up to become this prophetic figure. So I'm going to fast forward to John maybe a little bit um, and then we'll backtrack to the birth of Jesus. So John and Jesus are born pretty close together, but John rises up to be basically, as the New Testament describes, the last in the line of Old Testament prophets. So we kind of just finished the book of prophets two episodes ago. So John is kind of considered the end of that era within the New Testament thinking. So he his mindset is that he believed by preparing the way for the kingdom of God, it would arrive at last. Meaning this idea of exile was finally going to come to an end. And John believed that through his ministry of repentance and baptism, he was going to help bring that about, you know, by being obedient, by making the way straight for the Lord to come back, essentially, which is, again, a prophetic theme. 
Um, so the kingdom would come with repentance, and I think it's really important for us to understand repentance is turning from one direction back to where God was leading his people. So there's a, a great line about a scholar named Josephus. If you are in any sort of New Testament or early church scholarship, Josephus' name will come up a lot because he's a contemporary of a lot of um, Christian events, but he's not a Christian. So he's a historical source we have outside of the gospel to confirm some of the gospel events. So he like mentions Jesus in his writings. He mentions John the Baptist. So he's a reason why we can have a source to say there's someone else that recognized that these people were alive. So anyways, he has a line in his own um, writings. He leads the Jews in a war. <clears throat> and he would say to his contemporaries, repent and listen to me. Now, when he says that, what he's basically saying to them is, Put away your ideas on military tactics, your strategies. Turn around, quit listening to that, and listen to what I have to say. So repentance is basically saying, quit going the direction, the way that you're thinking, the way that you want to do things, and listen to what I have to say. So that's kind of what John is calling the Jews to do, is to repent and recognize where God is leading his people. And then baptism is basically just this, symbolic physical action of emerging into that new repentant life so yeah go ahead man yeah uh, i think we'll mention we'll touch this a little bit further but uh one thing that we you normally see in those writings that's why i said they're very well uh written books is they always tend to connect all these things to the Old Testament. You know? Yeah. And even John the Baptist, you know, his speech, like, like repent and everything, you know, that's kind of one of my favorite speech uh, in the Bible, is him quoting from Isaiah, you know. Mm. Like this, you know, yeah, Isaiah, this story that said, that kind of is set up when God himself comes to rule, to rule the earth, you know. So it's kind of uh, telling the people that, what Isaiah said there, that, hey, God is coming, the God is coming himself, the king is coming himself to rule the earth, it's about to happen. Mm. So him just saying that, just using those Isaiah words, it's telling everybody yep. you know, that, hey, this is about to happen. I don't know, I, when I was reading the Bible before I had all this knowledge, I was like, why is this short speech attracting so many people, you know? Because once you start reading, like, all these people came and I were asking questions, but they were obeying and they were, like, being baptized. Yeah. This new thing happening. But then they just hear this guy saying this small, short speech, but then they just start coming, you know? Yeah. But once you start understanding the connection he was making, it's like, hey, God himself, what Isaiah, Isaiah said, it's about to happen. God himself is coming as, as a king. So everybody will want to repent. Yeah. Everyone will want to go back and just make their way straight, make their life straight so they can be prepared to have this. Yeah. No, I think you make a really good point that I probably would have forgot is oftentimes, not oftentimes, every time there is a passage quoted from the Old Testament, in the Gospels themselves, it's pretty abbreviated. It's like a one line from that passage. But we have to understand kind of we talked about this in our discipleship episode a while back. Almost every person would have a baseline of the first five books of the Bible. Most people every week are going to the synagogue. The scriptures are deeply a part of their lives. And when a, a portion of a scripture is quoted, what is not said or not quoted is just as important as what is. Because 
the the speaker at the time would expect his listeners to fill in the blanks with the rest of that passage. So like a great example is when Jesus says, you know, Father, Father, why have you abandoned me? He's quoting from the Psalms, but in that Psalm at the end is vindication. So Jesus is quoting that specifically to say like, I am inhabiting this Psalm right now, right? Because it's all about God, why have you abandoned me? I'm alone. My bones are you know, ground to dust, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. But then at the end it says, but you will vindicate me. You will rescue me. You will save me. So it's really important when we see that um, to in our own lives, because we don't have <laughs> the entire book of Psalms memorized, to go back and see what is the rest of the passage being said here. Um, and I think, like you said, that's a great example that why were people so excited? Well, when you fill in the blanks, you realize that John is basically saying the time has come. God's going to come back to be king. Uh, And I think as well, we have to understand that what is written down is probably not the full speech of everything these people said. You know what I mean? But it was the the condensed, summarized version. You know, when Jesus is giving his Sermon on the Mount, I'm sure there are other things that he said in that moment. But the the important facts were written down for us. So anyways... Um, John, oh, go ahead. And maybe something to add into the baptism. Uh, yeah. I think we will also talk a little bit about it when we come to Jesus Christ's baptism. But that was, this was kind of the new movement John was kind of starting yes. in the sense of uh, you guys to inherit, inherit this land had to go through the Red Sea, mm. you know, as a, as a way to like, we were on the way, we we're starting walking too that promised land, you know. So if uh, John uses this metaphor of just going and being immersed into the river, being baptized, as this, this way of saying, hey, they, the kingdom mm-hmm. of God is coming, so you guys have to kind of reset, go back to, you guys are living, yeah. kind of living in Egypt now, so you guys have to come back here, being baptized, to start entering in this yeah. new way of life that is about to start. And the Jordan River was the river that God parted for the Israelites to enter into the promised land. Yeah, definitely. That's a good thought. Um, and we always have to keep in mind, too, that like in the previous episode, maybe this is a good place for a reminder. There are lots of kingdom agendas. There is kind of this feverish understanding that the Messiah is coming soon, right? I, kind of like, I don't... It's a bad comparison because the Messiah did come, but it's kind of like um, in the early 2000s, at least in America, there was just this um, idea of end times with the Y2K and everything else. There's just kind of this fever that everyone is like feeling this pressure moment, right? And so we have to understand this is kind of the world that Jesus and his contemporaries are living in. They are tired of Rome. Um, The Pharisees are pushing hard for strict Torah adherence with the idea that the kingdom will come through that. Um, there's the Essenes, like we talked about in the previous episode. There's John. There's all. There's lots of fake messiahs rising up. And I think it's really important, as a side note, when we read the name Jesus Christ, Christ is the Greek word for messiah. So it's not a last name. It's not a surname, right? It is a title. So saying Jesus the messiah. And I think it's more helpful to use messiah because Christ is so kind of tied into Jesus's name. So throughout this, we'll use Messiah, but it means Christ. They're synonymous. It's Greek and Hebrew. So anyways, let's go maybe backtrack a little bit to the birth of Jesus and kind of his early life. So there's a lot of themes within the birth of Jesus in this narrative that's found in Matthew and Luke. And they're purposely making these themes clear because he's 
basically anointed, right? When he's born, he said, this is going to be the king, Emmanuel, um, and, or sorry, Messiah literally means anointed one. So to proclaim this person as the Messiah, it's literally to say they are anointed by God to be the ruler. Um, so he is anointed long before he's made king, like David, right? We talked about how it was years on the run and in trial um, before David is made king. He's born in Bethlehem. He's witnessed, his birth is witnessed by shepherds, right? Um, so all these kind of themes are meant to have the reader understand that here is the new David promised in the prophetic books, right? And, and uh, one other thing that I just realized when I was reading, because I never understood why, why that is wise men. Mm, yeah. These people who come to visit Jesus. I never understood, like, what are these people? What is yeah, happening? Yeah. You know, why are they bringing all these things? You know, but if you understand that the, the big image when the Messiah comes is a lot of nations, you know, will come together, you know. And those wise men, they're people from different nations, you know. They're not people from Israel, they're not people from kind of that Palestine area, you know. They're people from other areas, you know, that they come with gifts to honor this new baby, this king, this new king that is happening. So it's just this setup to say, hey, this is actually, it's really what, what, what the Bible was. The prophet said back then, all yeah. these nations are coming and all of them are paying tribute to this new king. Yeah, I think my pastor back home once preached a sermon on this that was really interesting. Um, so obviously we talked about how the Greeks in the last episode, Alexander the Great, the Macedonians rather, took out the Persian Empire. But that doesn't mean like no Persians existed anymore, right? Persian culture still existed. And the Persians were who Daniel served under. And Daniel was in charge of kind of the, the wise men and the dreamers in the time that Daniel was alive. And so there's even believed to maybe have been a strain of these guys who still like viewed Yahweh as someone important. So that these guys as Persians were recognizing even from the time of Daniel, like the promises that God had made and recognized the time had come. Um, so anyways, that's just kind of an interesting side note. Yeah. I can't tell you. I know a ton of research about that. But anyways, so there's a little stint where Joseph gets a dream. Joseph is basically, for lack of a better term, Jesus' uh, stand-in father. Obviously, he raises him as his own son. Um, and Joseph gets a dream that they need to flee to Egypt because Herod, we talked about Herod before um, in the last episode. Well, his son is also a megalomaniac, and he's going to wipe out basically all the babies in Bethlehem um, under a certain age. So, what's up? The story of Pharaoh, you know? Yeah, exactly. recalling this story, too. Yeah, and there's constant references to Jesus being the greater Moses, right? And this is, again, another theme being thrown in. And not that this diminishes what Herod did at all. Sometimes we think, like, oh my gosh, like, Where's the historical record, or how did we not hear about this? But Bethlehem was not a huge town at this point, right? So the amount of children under the age of two might have been like 100. So this is why maybe it's kind of gone out of the history books, because in a world full of violence and evil, um, you know, 100 kids disappearing in, quote-unquote, a backwater country doesn't seem as significant. But obviously to the gospel writers, they're appalled by this. This is just another example of why the Roman rulers... And those they put in power are not the legit godly figure kings, right? Whether they try to be or not or try to make themselves look that way. So anyways, 
they flee, they go back at, uh, once Herod is dead, um, uh, and they basically find out, okay, um, the new ruler isn't really any better, so they go back to Galilee where um, they were originally from. So Jesus basically grows up in Galilee. We There's only really one story of Jesus' youth, and that's when they go basically to the temple for um, one of the major, I believe it's Passover, but I'm not, one of the major festivals. Um, we can look it up later maybe. But anyways, Mary and Joseph and the caravan leaving think Jesus is just with, you know, one of his family members or their friends or whatever, but then they realize he's not there, so they go back to the temple and, they, you know, they're a bit in a fluster, like, what are you doing? Why don't you come? And Jesus kind of makes this remark of, like, didn't you know I was going to be in my father's house? And you kind of go, okay, like, there's something different about this guy, you know what I mean? Obviously, the miraculous birth uh, plays into that, but it's just one example that the gospel writers give us, and then it's basically silence um, up into the age of anywhere from 30 to 31, um, that Jesus then steps back onto the stage. And I think, you know, I don't want to spend a ton of time here, but I think there is something interesting about living in obscurity, whereas, you know, our world very often wants to be in the limelight. It's about getting your name out there. It's about your social media influence. You know, I've heard plenty of times, like, you got to build your influence and platform so you can reach more people. But Jesus was really that was counter to the way that Jesus lived. He never marketed himself to be famous in order to win people over. That wasn't his approach. And in fact, he was content to live as a normal human being for 90% of his life um, and learning to submit to the Father. It does have a line basically saying he grew in wisdom in power and strength, right? So Jesus had to grow into the person he was. You know, the, the literal you know, presence of God in flesh had to grow into that person. Um, so anyways, his ministry begins to start and his ministry lasts a total of three years. But it's basically marked by him going to John. So in a sense, validating the ministry that John the Baptist has started um, and asked to be baptized. So maybe I'll hand it over to, to you for that. So yeah, um, the story is Jesus Christ gets there and he gets into the river uh, well i feel like this is kind of a mix of all the animations that i've seen but also what the bible says yeah 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 uh he gets ready to be baptized and then john the baptist just says uh i am not worthy of doing this i'm not even worthy to untie your, your shoes and everything but then jesus say hey no it's written and it has to happen just quoting uh, the prophets and everything and then uh, something very interesting happened because baptism is something that uh, John has already been doing you know so it, it didn't start with Jesus Christ he was doing that you know just preparing the way and baptizing people and everything but when he baptized Jesus something different happened you know so we hear this voice um, the, it says the effort the, 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 the skies open up and then you hear this voice that comes and says uh, this is my son, my beloved one, uh, and then we 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 see this uh, this image of the bird coming and, and and landing on him. So so yeah, of course, there's a lot of things going on in there. I think we'll that's our next step to just dive in a yeah. little deeper on those things. Yeah, and so I think it's one a vindication by the father. So this is the marketed beginning. 
and in a sense, the empowerment of the spirit to launch what Jesus is about to launch, right? Um, and I think when we talk about water baptism, especially, a lot of times we go like, well, why do I need to do that? Why can't I just decide in my heart uh, and say, yeah, I'm going to follow Jesus. But there is something about the submission of Jesus even to this marked act and that it began, it was the starting point of this life of ministry that he was about to embark on. Um, and in a sense, you know, we talked about this a little bit in our discipleship, um, but I think we can talk about it more in maybe a spiritual disciplines episode. What we do with our body matters, right? And so the physical immersion of water and then coming out with a declaration behind it, um, there's something about it, you know? It's not like mystical magic mojo or anything like that, but there is something about when our physical reality and the inner reality match, God meets us in that, right? And empowers us for something new. Um, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. And also, uh, just uh, remember, like, this is uh, in a community where they are expecting God himself coming, mm. you know? They're expecting God himself coming and ruling, uh, ruling, kind of doing most of the things that Jesus did. Yeah. But what happened is they don't see God in the way they were expecting. You know, they just mm. see these, these uh, men just going around and doing all these things, you know. So in the sense, there is that question, like, is how is this God coming, you know? Yeah. And I just feel like this is a very clear uh, statement, just, you know, kind of saying that this is my son. This is mm. like part of me. And this is me coming to rule. Yeah. So I feel like this has like the, the first thing that happens before Jesus starts his ministry is God assuring the people like, yes, this is me coming yeah. um, and ruling. The, 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 yeah, ruling. And I feel like this is where, this is kind of the first, um, the first verse that is used that leads to the concept of of, of Trinity. Okay, yeah. You know, so this is kind of the base, yep. the base line of all the the Father confirming the Son while the Holy Spirit descends. Yeah, definitely. And I think you know people will say you know there's no Trinity that phrase used in the Bible, but the Trinity is painted all over yes. the Bible. Mm -hmm. Um, and like we maybe talked about the Gospels, it's only later as we process things that the, the early church maybe gave name to some of these concepts that were already floating around and existing. So, Jesus is baptized by the Spirit, and Scripture says that it immediately, the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. So, rather than launching into ministry, Jesus actually spends another, um, I believe it's 40 days, right? Mm -hmm. And 40 nights in the wilderness, which is a callback to the flood. It's a callback to the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, because this is the exact wilderness that the Israelites would have been wandering in, right? Um, and so Jesus is in the wilderness, basically to hear the Father's voice. And at the very end of that, that's when he is tempted, right? The three temptations, um, basically to be self-sustaining. Why don't you make bread for yourself, right? Um, because aren't you the God that can make bread in the wilderness, in a sense? But Jesus understands that it is the Father who is the provider that he needs, not self-assurance. Um, there's the, the temptation to do this spectacular, stand on the pinnacle of the temple and jump off, right? And show people who you really are. And 
you can gain a, a very large gathering or following on Instagram if you were to jump off a building and uh, not get crushed. But that's not the way that the kingdom comes. It doesn't come through the spectacular to draw people to a personality. Um, and then there's the temptation to basically accomplish what Jesus had come to accomplish without the cost. You know, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world if you would only bow to me. So rather than, you know, face the cross, all you need is bow. And what you have come to fulfill or do or accomplish can get done, right? So it's it's accomplishing what God wants to do without the cost or the road that God wants us to take. Yeah, um, yeah go ahead. And the two stories that you mentioned uh, on the Old Testament, they're kind of a story of new beginning, I would say. Mm. For example, the story of the uh, flood, you know, it's yep. kind of God, you know, coming and cleansing the world from all this evil, all the, all the evil that were reigning back at that time, you know. So it's kind of this new new way or new life that is about to start, you know. Mm. And it's the same thing with the story of, of, of the exile. Or no, the elderness. Or yeah, the wilderness. Elderness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, it's elderness because they got old and died. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah. yeah, that's a great point. Yes, you know, so it's kind of this new way. Just Jesus saying, it's it, this is new thing. This is something connected to Moses, you know. And I feel like that's one of the big theme uh, in, in most of the Gospels, you know, uh, I think Matthew and Mark, all of them do this good job in kind of connecting Jesus as this new Moses, you know? mm. new day, David, but a new Moses, yep. so they kind of connect him to these really two, two great people, you know, yep. so kind of, it's like, yes, this is a new way of living, you, you guys went there and then you fell, but this is the person who will come and do, do it right. No, that's great. And yeah, that's exactly what Jesus does. He is, he trusts the Father in the wilderness rather than going his own way. And so he comes out of that time, um, and this is where his ministry really begins. But in the Gospel of John, John is much more blatant about a few things in the sense of John kind of puts it out there at the beginning when he says, John, or Jesus rather, is this tabernacle person, right? He says, he pitched his tent of flesh among us, which calls back to the tabernacle, which was, again, the, the place where the Israelites met God's presence in the wilderness wandering, right? And up until the time that the, the temple was built, essentially, the presence of God went with his people. And so John is basically saying in Jesus, in his ministry, in his person, we recognize all of a sudden here is a heaven and earth place. Whereas before we had to go to the temple or the tabernacle or these certain locations. In Jesus, we see where heaven and earth become one reality. They're no longer separate. They're no longer heaven over here, God's reality, earth over here, ours. But in Jesus, this is the place where both of them meet. So as Jesus goes out in his ministry, that's a huge theme that we're going to explore is this idea of what happens when the kingdom of God meets the kingdom of men, right? So before that, though, Jesus decides to call people to be his disciples. So we talked about this in the discipleship in the community podcast, but he basically goes around and says, follow me, right? And he specifically um, calls 12 individuals, 12 guys to be kind of his close circle. Jesus had more than 12 disciples. I think that's something I didn't really realize till later. Jesus probably had hundreds, maybe even thousands of disciples. 
including men and women, but these 12 played a special role, especially with the idea of this idea of reconstituting the lost Israel. So the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob, it's this almost reassigning or remarking that the 12 tribes are no longer lost, but the 12 are going to be restored around this person, Jesus, right? So that's why the number 12 is significant, not that there were only 12, but that these 12 played that role in a way, right? So Jesus, the the thing I love about the kingdom of God and something that's really, really important for us to understand is of being a disciple or a follower of Jesus requires community. It is not a... Um, option or secondary attachment to following Jesus, you cannot be a follower or disciple of Jesus by yourself. You have to have community. So much so that Jesus himself, God incarnate, right, this tabernacle person, built community around him. And the the cool thing about this community is you when you begin to look at the 12 disciples and you read off the names and lists and you're like, okay, who are these guys? One is a tax collector. So I believe we talked about tax collectors. So they're kind of like the lowest of society because they're like the the traitors. Imagine, you know, one of your own paying the helping gain money for the empire that dominates you. That's a tax collector alongside a zealot. A zealot was someone who literally killed tax collectors, right? Killed people who were compromisers, killed the Romans and the oppressors. Some were called daggermen, Sicarii. And so Jesus is building this community of where tax collectors and zealots literally are in the same circle, right? Where, you know, the the ANC and the apartheid figures are coming together. And that might shock people. That might anger them even. That might put something in you that really, like, makes you even recoil. But that's the kind of thing that Jesus is doing by inviting people to follow him, is tearing down those old dividing walls, those old things that used to, to push this aside, not acknowledging them or saying that they were okay. You know, Jesus isn't saying being a zealot or a tax collector is okay. He's saying rather leave all that behind and follow me, yeah. right? Yeah, and uh, my favorite, like favorite, favorite, because I have so many favorite things in the Bible. <laughs> I feel like in this podcast, uh, I've said that. <laughs> my favorite, your favorite, favorite today favorite verse uh, in the Bible, like since like 10 years ago. It's um, Matthew 4, verse 17. Okay. When Jesus says, like, repent because the kingdom of heaven is here. You mm-hmm. know, that's a very short statement, but it has so, so many things inside there, you know. And I feel like it's really tied to that, to what Jesus does next, you know. Inviting all these different people, you know, just the way you guys thought it was, it was the right way of living. Mm-hmm. It's That's not the right way of living, you know. That's not what I'm about to bring you. That's not what I'm introducing to you. You know, that idea you said in the, in the beginning of repent, you know, change the way you think, you see things, change the way you think, because I am bringing something new, yep. something different. And I feel like that's, the, this is what happened here with all these different people coming all together, you know, because I don't, the zealot, yes, they're like kind of the way, way stream hate for the tax collector. But even everybody else, you know, because, you know, because they were kind of suffering from that, you know, they kind of look at this tax collector, you know, as like, ah, this should not be part of us, you know. Yeah. But then they have to see them in him in a very different way. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. And one of the, the show, The Chosen, I don't know if you've heard of that. Yes. One of the things that I think 
the show The Chosen does so well is show that aspect aspect of the discipleship or the disciples rather their life around Jesus that it wasn't just easy right it wasn't just like everyone was living in some um, acid trip dreamland it was like it was hard right it was bringing together these completely different people different worldviews and picking up something new but I think what you say about that repent and follow me is such a great line because really that becomes the key message of what Jesus goes around and says when he announces what we would call the good news the gospel and it I think sometimes we like especially this far into the future we almost spiritualized maybe isn't the right word but we lose the the real deeper physical action meaning behind it so what is Jesus really saying in like common language today he's saying leave the agendas the worldviews the opinions the dreams and goals you have for your life where you think your life is leading you the good life you envisioned for yourself and come and follow me and discover what the good life really is and it's an invitation it's not a oh you're this awful human being it's you've been doing this and you the results aren't working for you right now recognize leave that stuff behind and recognize the life that I have to offer you. Come and follow me, right? Discover what God's life really looks like and how you can experience it for yourselves. And why did people why did people leave their lives, right? Because that's a big ask. You know, why did um, Peter, yeah, Peter and Andrew, James and John just drop their nets immediately and follow him? And because there was something different about the person of Jesus that was so compelling that whatever you were doing before didn't seem to matter quite as much. And part of that, you know, what we're going to dive into next, uh, most of the series we've kind of worked chronologically, um, but we're not going to go through step-by-step Jesus' ministry. We're going to touch on maybe some of the main moments of that ministry. But I want to just talk about very quickly the theme of Jesus' ministry. So basically what happens from then, Jesus brings together these guys, these 12 guys, along with the other disciples, and he begins going around announcing the good news of the kingdom, teaching in parables, and healing, right? So those are kind of the three cornerstones of what Jesus is going and doing. So I want to talk about what exactly is this kingdom. So in Matthew's gospel, it's called the kingdom of heaven. In Luke and Mark's gospel, it's called the kingdom of God, or and I believe in John as well. So why does Matthew call it kingdom of heaven? Very, very brief answer. It's out of a reverence. So to say the name of Yahweh, like we just kind of throw Yahweh around like it's not that big a deal. But to Jews, they would never use that name. They would use Lord or maybe Elohim, God, right? But they would never use Yahweh. So even if you were going to be even more respectful, you wouldn't even use that. You would say heaven, right? But heaven was the representative place of God. So it's literally the same phrase. They're not using different phrases. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God are the exact same things. It's more out of a reverence because Matthew is a Jew that he's using that that phrase. So anyways, they go around, they start announcing the kingdom of heaven um, or kingdom of God. So this is basically what Jesus is doing is going around when he's healing, when he's teaching in parables, he's showing this is what it looks like when God is king, right? That the reality that God brings is full restoration. The lame walk, right? The blind see, the mute can talk, the demons are cast out. 
this is the kingdom representation. The best way that I've ever heard it described is, we believe that God will restore all things completely in the future. And we'll talk about that, especially in the Revelation episode. But what Jesus was doing was allowing that future reality to break in into the present. So we are getting a real, real-time glimpse of what God's good future looks like in our current moment, right? And so anytime we experience healing, that restoration, we are experiencing the goodness of God, right? The kingdom of God breaking into our reality. So that's kind of what, that was the point of what Jesus was doing. He was revealing what the kingdom of God really looked like. It's healing, it's wisdom, it's way of life, it's practice. That's a huge, huge thing as we get into the Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus begins just going around showing This is what God's message, this is what God's rule, this is what God's purpose is for humanity, especially for his chosen people, right? And and one of the one of the things kind of just to connect this to the uh, two episodes ago uh, back, uh, it's we have to remember that we are talking about people who have had some people who say they are the Messiah. Mm. so we had like Judas um, Maccabeus and all these other people you know kind of came and claimed that title you know so they claimed that title in more like military way you know like trying to bring it this in this military way so it's it the way they were claiming it, it benefited the people, you know, and the people would always have hope because they read, they, they read the, 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 the prophets and they know that when they, when they, when the Messiah comes, it's going to be a great thing, you know. So even though he, those, those other ones were not going through people, you know, and to, to communities, they kind of had hope on them, you know. But now we have this person, this G- Jesus, you know, who is the Messiah and other than just claiming a military, you know, uh, status, you know, he just goes straight to the people, straight to people who are directly affected, you know, who will be directly affected yep. by this new way of living coming in. So, yeah. And I think what's interesting, too, is Jesus bypasses what we would normally see as the means of gaining power for oneself. Yes going you know normally you kind of rub shoulders maybe grease some palms of the important people the rich people the people in jerusalem you know who are running the show but that's the exact opposite of what jesus does he goes to the heart of people who are hurting the real people that are the unfortunate casualties of power hungry people of the rich who oppress the poor right jesus goes straight to those people and invites them into the the kingdom and begins to say this is actually who the kingdom is for and this is who god cares for and so part of jesus's ministry reveals god's love for people it is a way of peace so non-violent action in um uh in a way of fighting back is not right quite the right word but like fighting against evil through self-giving love i think is a huge theme justice jesus calls out the wrongs of the rulers right he calls herod a fox he says you know the rulers of the world act this way but you are meant to act a different way so it's not like jesus is just kind of like this pie in the sky like everything's great kind of guy no he calls people out on their evil on their hypocrisy right um and then there's the goodness and also bringing goodness over the land and also the nations right so it's an invitation um i think another aspect of the healing 
So not only is it the breaking in of God's power, of God's love, of God's um, purpose for people, right? It's also a vindication of Jesus. So it's like basically it becomes an argument. The Pharisee, anytime you read an argument with the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the the scribes or the lawyers, it is an argument about kingdom agenda. It's not like they're mad at Jesus because he's doing good things. What they're mad about is that he is teaching and leading people in a way that's contrary to what they believe um, is how the kingdom of God will arrive or what the kingdom of God will even look like, right? It's not supposed to be for the tax collectors. It's not supposed to be for the prostitutes. Those are the people that are supposed to get kicked out, right? It's us really strict religiously keeping people. It's the people who keep Torah. That's who God's supposed to vindicate. And Jesus basically says, look at the fruit. Look at the fruit of your lives. Are you producing life in other people or are you weighing them down with more burdens than they can carry, you know? And, and so these conflicts always center around that the scribes, the Pharisees, whoever, they can't counter what Jesus says because clearly there's some sort of power working behind him, right? So what do you have to do then? If Jesus is healing, if Jesus is doing his miraculous things, and he's saying it's by the hand of God that these things are happening, that God is vindicating him, then you have to say it's either that's true or you have to say there's another power working here. And that's it. That's the route that they choose. They choose to say Jesus is demon-possessed, that you know he's got Beelzebub, because their hearts are so hard that they are unwilling to accept. This is the the real rub of it. They are unwilling to accept that what God might want to do would look different than what they anticipated. And I think that is a huge lesson for all of us, that what God, what God sees in other people, the people God uses, the people that God wants to heal and restore, or even the way that God wants to do things can be dramatically different than what we would envision, but are we willing to trust and get on board anyways, right? Um, and so that becomes kind of the the main conflict within Jesus's ministry um, with these guys. The other big aspect is parables. I don't know. Did you want to mention anything else about the healing um, before we move on? No, I just feel like you mentioned it. You made, you made a really good point with just the conflict, uh, I think, with all these pressure groups. Uh, yeah, and just that expectation like, hey, if it comes, you know, because we've been... Um, doing all these good things, you know, and then if he comes, I will be, you know, we will be kind of in his right, in his right side, you know, kind mm. of ruling with him yep. and all these things, you know. So it just kind of brings that frustration, you know, it's like, oh, he comes and then he just go to, to the lowest people and not us. Yes. And I think how the, so I think it maybe is important to say how the argument is normally framed is Jesus is totally against rules, doesn't want doesn't believe in the Torah or whatever. And these other guys are just really religious rule followers and like religion is just meant to restrict you and Jesus wants to give you freedom. And I think there's an, a slight aspect of that in the sense of Jesus was not about just creating rules to create rules to burden people and then not actually practice them. But the real issue was who, what does the kingdom of God look like and how is it brought in and who is welcome into it, right? Um, so it's not an idea of like, religion versus freedom you know there wasn't even a thing called religion in the sense of how we would view it um Judea, to be Jew, to be a jew was to be a follower of yahweh there was no distinction right you were either 
a bad follower or an apostate walking away or you were a true Jew, right? That's how they viewed it. They didn't see it as following a religion. But anyways, so part of the way that Jesus can dodge some of the um, criticism and maybe even the danger, because at this point, Jesus knows that his time hasn't come. You'll hear that several times in the gospel, that his time hadn't come. Um, and so a way to avoid maybe the political anger of Rome before, to avoid, you know, the the Pharisees being able to, you know, nail him on some sort of blasphemy, Jesus chooses to speak in coded language. Parables were not unique to Jesus. Other teachers also taught in parables. It wasn't like Jesus was the inventor of them, but Jesus was the master of them, let's say, right? And so the reason why he speaks in these parables is that those who really had ears to hear, Jesus says this all the time, if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, listen to what I have to say. And parables were a way for people to receive truth who really wanted to know it. They would hunger for more. They would recognize what Jesus was saying behind the coded imagery and be drawn to him. But it was a way to harden the hearts of those who had no intention of wanting to follow him because they weren't even willing to hear what he had to say. Um, It's also a way of avoiding directly saying things like, you know, Rome is a horrible, evil empire that needs to get thrown down, um, and I'm going to be the king. Uh, it's another way of being able to bring critique. You know, he talks about the vineyard, right, and the vine dressers. Um, and the, the vineyard has always been seen as Israel. In Old Testament prophecy, the vineyard, that is always an image of Israel, right? And the vine dresser is usually seen as God, but also as the caretakers of Israel, Um, And so the Pharisees know, he literally says in the scripture, they know he's talking about them, right? But it's a way of saying it without directly saying it, if that makes sense. And instead of repenting, right, eyes to see, ears to hear, um, instead of recognizing what Jesus is saying in that parable, all they do is get angry, right? And I think the, the capstone of that is the raising of Lazarus, which we're getting way, way ahead, but... Jesus literally raises Lazarus from the dead. And the epitome of a hardened heart is when the leaders say, we have to get rid of Lazarus and we have to get rid of Jesus because people, there's no way we can counter this and people are going to start following him. And so instead of recognizing like, this, bro, this dude just raised someone from the dead. What are you talking about? They immediately go to protect their own agendas and interests. And so you can see the heart of where they really are this entire time. So I think maybe the next thing we can just jump in, the the two major kind of um, moments in the Gospels that I want to talk about is the Sermon on the Mount and the feeding of the 5,000. Because I think there's a ton of value in both of those stories that maybe isn't always clear. But we can start with the Sermon on the Mount because it happens first. Um, but this is basically Jesus's interpretation of the Mosaic law. So it's taking the Mosaic law in the phrase that he says, you have heard it said, but I'm saying to you is literally um, like a figure of speech that was used in that day to say, this is my interpretation of what this means. And so, you know, maybe you can talk to us a little bit, Paulo, about is this just a bunch of new rules that are even harder that Jesus is telling us? Or is this like a radically new way of being a human being, right? And what does that look like? Yes, uh, so 
and kingdom movement we kind of have this culture i think it kind of became a culture mm. you know that like the first two three groups we have we kind of go straight to the ceremony of, of the mountain you know and the read the question the answer to that question is really simple uh the sermon of the mountain it's kind of the uh jesus setting up the rule setting up what he's doing you know if you really want to understand like what is going on and everything you know what is jesus doing or what he's about to do you just go and stay go read the sermon of the mountain you understand everything you know you kind of understand all these concepts so so yeah um just just like we said about the concept of repentance you know of changing the way you're living you know to have this new way of living new way new priorities in life you know uh so i just feel like this ser- the sermon of the mountain it kind of brings these rules in this way of living this new way yeah. of life in the sense that it's not no longer it's no longer more about yourself but it's more about the community it's more about people that are surround you you know it's this idea of you not the people around you they're not your enemies you know but they are your brothers mm. they are your sisters they are your friends so you have to really make sure that you are living in peace with them and yeah. make sure that you are building this community this new kingdom of heaven so what are the rules or what is the way new way of living in this kingdom of heaven are all these things he says in in the yeah in the same of the month so it's not him coming and making the 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 command the commandment in the uh, at the mountain uh sinai uh, has two hearts but it's him highlighting how important is a community yep. it's him bringing this uh making it important how this new kingdom really really cares about your relationship with other people one of the big stories is uh, one of the big things he says is when someone has problems with you it's not when you have problems yeah. with that person when you realize there's someone who has problems with you you are the one who has to go and set yeah. everything right yeah so, it's a radically different way of living and i think again the call back to moses is where on mount sinai moses is given the law right mm-hmm. and he brings it before the people and he reads it to them and what jesus is basically doing is taking that same law that moses read before the israelites and where is he he's on a mountain right it's called the sermon on the mount and he's now presenting god's law in a radically new way of being human being where it's in in the words of the prophet god's going to write his law on the hearts of men rather on tablets of stone that's a direct call to the tablets that Moses was given the law and and now Jesus is writing it on the hearts of men. And yeah, I mean, I think all of us if we were really honest, we we would say that maybe the things that Jesus says seem impossible, but at the same time that we would want the life that Jesus has to offer, a life without anger, a life without holding contempt or, you know, just holding people as less than, you know, looking at them as less than, a life free of lust a life of self-giving love instead of retaliation and just striking back, a life that really is um, surrounded by the love of God and sees people through the lens of love, right? Um, And I think part of what's amazing is Jesus is inviting us into this life not as a try harder and you can accomplish this, right? But the people he even invites, the blesseds, the invitation, are the people that would would be in a position of low status, right? So the kingdom is good news because 
people of low status, people of every status, people who have hungered for God's kingdom, people who have been far away from God's kingdom are invited to recognize God is offering an entirely new way of life by his spirit, right? And so it's this life that we have a part to play, right? When Jesus says, do whatever it takes, basically, pluck out your eye, cut off your arm. It's exaggerated language to say, do whatever it takes to conquer lust in your life. It means that God is going to meet you in the midst of that, though. It's not about trying harder, but it's about putting in the effort to become the kind of person that really wants to center their life around the truth of Jesus. And even at the very end, gives the invitation to say, whoever builds their life on these words of mine is going to be like a house that can stand against the storms. doesn't mean the storm is going to be free of storms, but it can stand against the storms. And anyone who doesn't build their life on these words of mine, when the storms come, it's going to knock you down, right? It's going to, it's going to wreck you. And so Jesus is offering a life, not only that really, if we actually put it into practice, could solve all the world's problems, it's also a life that can stand against the storms. But I think the most important key is I would encourage everyone to read through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Every single one of those things that Jesus asks someone to do is the exact way that Jesus leads his life all the way up into the cross. The cross is the ultimate example of this kind of self-giving love. And so Jesus is not inviting us to live a life that he's unwilling to model himself. But this is what it means to follow in the pattern of Jesus. That when we look at how Jesus interacted with other people, how he lived, how he saw them, what he was willing to do for them, he's inviting us to live this kind of life, to inhabit the life-changing power of Jesus, and that it is available for us as well. Um, I think, do you have any final thoughts? And then after that, let's take a quick break. Yeah, uh, I think we, we, we spoke a little bit about this on the first four, five, five episodes, uh, in the sense that most of the times that you go to God, uh, or at least you put yourself in a position to try and really put in practice most of the things that Jesus Christ is saying, uh, most of these times when you start doing these things, you just realize that you're never by yourself. You know, mm. it's not this one thing that you're really, really, really trying to do it by yourself, you know. And we're... Uh, there is this really good good book uh, on this, uh, and I feel like Anti Wright does a really good job with that. It's Heaven and Earth by Anti Wright, okay. you know, and it talks a lot about the Sermon on the Mountain, you know. So it really it really shows how important it is when we are really putting ourselves into trying to do that. You know, first it comforts us when we fail, but also we just need this God of love who's there to not just put a group of rules, rules in us to, take, mm. to, to obey them, but he's there, he really cares about those rules, and he assures us how important those yeah. rules are. And I think that's the, the baseline we have to work with, is this is not just new rules to restrict us, but it's an offering of a life that really can transform our world. Yes. That if you want to know how to defeat evil, how to defeat anger, how to defeat lust, all these things that you know weigh us down in life, Jesus is offering the kind of life that can stand both to defeat those things and stand against the trials of life. So that is why it's, the Sermon on the Mount has, I think, in a lot of ways, become one of the hardest to hear, but also one of the most radically transformational messages if we're willing to take it to heart. So in this second half, we'll explore kind of the feeding of the 5,000, 
um, maybe some of the last key themes about who Jesus saw himself as, um, as the Messiah, Son of Man, and then basically the rest of the timeline up until Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem. Hey guys, this is Jake. If you are currently a university student on a campus in Botswana, we want to extend an invitation to you to get plugged into a discipleship group. So if you're interested, if that's something you want to do, if you want to begin to be a part of this family we call Kingdom Movement, we would encourage you to go into this episode's bio. There should be a link to our Instagram page. You can send us a message, and we will make sure to connect to you at a time and a place that works best for you and your schedule for school. But we don't want you to miss this opportunity to get plugged in and a part of what God is doing on the university campuses here because we believe that you're a vital piece to what God wants to do to bring his kingdom, his wholeness, and his healing to the nation of Botswana and to the university specifically. So reach out to us today, guys, if that's something you're interested in. All right, thanks. Hey, guys, we're back from the break, and we're going to jump right in into the reason why we picked this story, the feeding of the 5,000. Um, partly because of the powerful symbolic meaning, but it's one of the very few stories that all four Gospels actually record. So I think that does show a deep significance to this story. Um, and there's several themes going on here. One being kind of the good shepherd starts off from Psalm 23. Um, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Um, and then the prophets pick up on this idea of shepherd. And basically that um, the shepherd of God's people are eating the flock rather than taking care of them. Basically the kings and the rulers um, but God himself is going to come and be their shepherd again and take care of his flock. And even when Jesus looks over the crowd in the story of the feeding of the 5,000, he says they are like sheep without a shepherd. And so he has compassion on them. And so this theme of God being the good shepherd, you know, we talk about the divinity of Jesus. Um, this is one of the biggest stories of that because Jesus is that good shepherd, right? He makes the claim, I am the good shepherd. Um, in part of the story, he makes them lie down in green pastures, right? And he leads them, um, not necessarily by still waters, but he takes care of them, right? He prepares a table for them. So this is a big theme of that being of the 5,000. But there's also another theme. Again, we've been talking about the Moses theme. And Paul, I'll let you touch on that one. So yes, uh, so just like uh, we said just to show that Jesus was uh, this bigger and better Moses, you know, the place this story has any connecting point to the story of the manna. So the story of the manna is uh, the, the Israelite, out of, uh, they, they are free from Egypt, so they're in desert and they are hungry and God decides to give them food. You know, so God's provide for them. They didn't have to work. So that's that's one of the big things, you know, it's just like they are not working, they're not harvesting this food and everything, you know. It's just God coming and providing the food for them. You yep. know, but then they just complain, keep complaining and they want to say, Oh no, we want we want something new and then everything, you know. But in this story is God uh showing that that he still is the provider of that time. You know, Jesus Christ is coming and proving that uh, this is a new way of life and this is a new way you guys are free and I am here to provide for you you know I'm the good shepherd and I will be providing for you I will be taking mm. care of all of you so he made them sit down and all these uh, 5,000 men and he makes them sit down and then uh, with this uh, little few breads and few 
um, fish. fish yeah and then it just feeds them and they, they all feed yeah. and then they are all really happy and i feel like this is when like most it has kind of some really good turning point and just people just realize like, wow this is something mm-hmm. amazing i just want to keep following him and everything yeah but, i think the gospel of john illustrates this story the best i was just reading it actually this morning um and it's interesting because it says that they immediately wanted to turn around and make him king. Yes. And Jesus actually leaves because of this. And it kind of makes you go like, well, what do you mean? But you can find out very soon as the story progresses, it was a king on their terms, not on the terms that Jesus saw kingship or messiahship. And they enter into this dialogue and this is where he crosses the the Sea of Galilee. He walks in the water. And when he gets on the other side, the people are like, how did you get over here? You know what I mean? We didn't see you leave. Um, and he basically says to them, you just want your bellies full. And there's it's actually a direct reference to Psalm 78. And Psalm 78 is basically this big psalm about how God has led his people out of exile. Right? He's leading them out of exile. And he provides all these things. But then immediately when their bellies are full... They're just, uh, you know, desiring the next thing and the next thing, and they don't really trust God. Um, And God's anger flares up at them. And Jesus basically tells them, all you really want is food. All you really want is to just be taken care of. You don't want to actually embrace the kingdom agenda I have for you. And the people get really angry. They even say, what sign are you going to show us? As if he didn't just show them a sign. And it's just a complete repeat of the Israel wandering in the wilderness, right? And Jesus says, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. And they, in this dialogue, they say, Moses is the one that gave us this bread. What sign are you going to show us? He says, Moses didn't give you that bread. God provided the bread. Um, And so there's just a lot of this revealing from this moment, right? Who really is the provider? Who is really the one that has been leading his people? And what are the people going to do when God comes back to lead them again? And so this becomes a big theme. Um, From this, I think it's really important for us to talk about that theme of what exactly... We did talk about messianic hopes in our last episode, but I think it's good to touch on it again. And then, as well, this idea of Son of Man. Son of Man is the most used title by Jesus for himself. He refers to himself as Son of Man more, by far more than any other title. Um, so really, Jesus is more interested in this Son of Man figure. So the Son of Man figure, like we said in the previous episode, is found in Daniel 7. So it's this figure that is basically vindicated and raised to the right hand of God over and against the enemies of God. So like, oftentimes with this story, so this is a great example um, Jesus will use the exact quotation from Daniel 7. We'll talk about this in the trial when he's on trial by the priesthood and they tear their robes and get mad. And a lot of people see this as the second coming of Jesus. For I don't, you know, I feel like my brain's been so rewired that I don't understand how that could happen. But it, it's not a downward movement. It's not Jesus coming from heaven back. You get what I'm saying? But it's an upward movement to be placed at the right hand of God. And so this story, this Daniel 7 story, Jesus is basically saying he is going to be, or he is that figure that God is going to vindicate and then raise to his right hand, seat him right next to him, basically sharing his authority with him, right? And so this is the figure that Jesus is using 
when he's talking about Son of Man, right? The Son of Man has authority to do X, Y, and Z. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The Son of Man, this is the role of that figure. Um, so this seems kind of maybe like a random throw-in, but I think it's just important to paint that picture. When we hear that title, what does Jesus mean by it? Like, is he just referring to himself in third person like a weirdo? Or, you know what I mean? Um, the other idea is messianic hopes. So Jesus' disciples, John the Baptist and the Jews, they all had like varying messianic hopes, like what this Messiah anointed kingly figure would do, how he would come into power. And almost like you touched on this earlier in the episode, all of, almost all of them viewed the figure in some sort of military role, that they were going to come in, conquer or kick out all the pagans, and then essentially conquer the world for God, if that makes sense. And even what I find super interesting is John the Baptist is a bit confused before he's beheaded and killed. We probably should have mentioned that in the narrative. But um, so John the Baptist is captured by Herod, right? The same guy and same family that we're going to try and kill Jesus because he basically criticizes Herod for taking his brother's wife. <laughs> um, and he says, yo, that's not a good move. And Herod's wife especially doesn't like that. She seems like a very vindictive, cruel woman. John the Baptist is typical Mozambican. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so John the Baptist is put into prison and he sends some of his disciples to say to Jesus, because you have to imagine that they're cousins. They're not just friends, right? They're family. And here is John in prison by the pagan rulers that the Messiah is supposed to overthrow. So John's expectation is probably like, okay, Jesus is going to break me out of jail. He's going to take over. He's going to show this Herod what's up. like that. And Jesus doesn't. Jesus is going around in Galilee and doing all these things. And John sends people and he says, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that we're really waiting for? Because even with the vindication of the Father's voice... John's expectations of what the Messiah was meant to look like is being thrown through a loop. And Jesus, in kind of a comforting but critiquing way, say, look, the blind see, the lame are healed, the deaf um, and the mute are good to go. Um, Blessed are those who are not stumbling on account of me, right? And this is, again, a quote from Isaiah. Um, of the day of the Lord, right? That God's going to make everything right. And so John has a choice to make. Is he going to hold on to his kingdom agenda or is he going to trust Jesus, right? Um, And that becomes kind of the theme of Jesus's ministry. After, immediately after, um, kind of what we were talking about, the bread from heaven, Jesus goes on to say, I am the good shepherd. A lot of I am phrases. He goes on to say, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, right? Kind of a weird passage and people walk away. Because they're just like, this is just too different. You know what I mean? Because they had an expectation of who Jesus should be. And Jesus turns to his Messiah. You talk about some of your favorite passages or verses. And this is one of my favorite. Because he turn, you can almost hear the sorrow in his voice when he turns to the 12. And he says, are you going to leave too? As if like, it even feels like, just like this whole story, it's teetering on the edge again, right? And Peter kind of representing the rest say, where else are we going to go? We know who you are. And even though you don't match our expectations, even though you say a lot of weird stuff, Jesus, like we know you're the author of life. Like we can't go anywhere else. And I think for our intended purposes, like that is the question. 
in our own lives, Jesus does things not by the way that we would want him to. He rules in a way that is different than our expectations. We want him to punish the people that we want him to punish. We want him to vindicate ourselves and the things that we do. But Jesus doesn't work on our terms. We come to Jesus on his terms. And so that becomes the theme of, you know, whether Jesus is the Messiah you expected or not, he is the Messiah. So what will you do with that? Um, so yeah, so he intends to rule in a radically different way, not by political scheming or bloodshed or authoritarianism like everyone else. And he consistently warns his contemporaries where that road lies, right? Because that's where they want to go. They want Jesus to be that. And they will end up trying to do it on their own. And this is where Jesus says, you know, you're going to be a part of Gehenna. Gehenna being the rubbish heap, right? The place where the old kings of Israel and Judah sacrificed their children to the god Molech. It became the trash heap because of the horrible atrocities and the bodies that piled up there. And this is the word where we get our modern day hell. And so Jesus is saying, your city, your culture, your people, you are going to be an extension of that place if you continue down the road that you're going to continue down. Because the pagans are going to come if you try and face them by military, if you try and fight them darkness for darkness. All it's going to do is create death and destruction. And so Jesus is really, in a very real sense, not only just offering a spiritual way to live or um, a personal way to live, but he's calling Israel, the chosen people, this chosen family that we talked about this entire time, to recognize the moment of God's visitation. He's here now. Will you fulfill your vocation alongside the Messiah or will you once again try and do your own thing? Um, and that kind of leads us into, yeah, why Jews first, right? That's a big part of Jesus's ministry. Maybe you can touch on that for us if you feel feel cool about it. Uh, no, just maybe touch a little bit back. Yeah, uh, please, please. Sorry. So yeah, I, I feel like uh, what you the, the 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 passage you just mentioned, you know, like where would you go? You know, it's just uh, I I found myself a lot in these positions, you know, and just like man, Jesus, what are you doing? You know, like what are you doing in my life and everything? You know, there are so many things that I really wanted. I was really praying for those things to happen. You know, but at the end of the day, they never happened. You know, just like mm-hmm. you answer this uh, this prayer, but you don't answer this one. You know, like. You, you just feel like, uh, you know, like, what is going on? And the moment you think about giving up, that's when the moment yeah. you start thinking, like, what am I going to do next, you know? If yeah. I give up, you know, where am I going to go, you know? Because, you know, it's just like what it says, you know, only you have, you know, the, the, the words of life, you know. Only Jesus has all these things, you know. So even I, even if you want to give up, like where else will I go, you know? Because it's just like you have the the best, or you have the best things, you know. You're the author of all life, so yeah. it's not like we can all run away from God. Yeah. So yeah, I just feel like that's that's been like a really, really, really big challenge, and we can. I feel like we can we can see the challenge. We can see the apostles you know the follower of jesus just kind of disciple that's just kind of struggling with that you know just kind of struggling with their expectation but also while they are what is happening you know what, yeah. what they can see with jesus and i just feel like we'll see that uh later in this verse you know when jesus christ 
dies and then they all just like what is going on mm. and we have this big story in the book of Luke you know like they walk uh, to MO and everything you know yeah like these just people disappointed you know because they see it's kind of just the peak of the struggle they had and we just see Jesus do all these things and kind of trust it like yes Jesus is the Messiah yeah. but then they see Jesus go and die you know mm. so and now all these things you know so it's just like them just saying that even though we all we don't understand what's going on we will stick with you yeah definitely so yeah Jesus as Messiah plays this role as representing this family right the family that God has been working through um, throughout history this is the moment for the Jewish people to recognize that God's going to act in a brand new way in history. This is the punctuation mark of their story, right? Um, and so Jesus, as that representative, is working within that narrative that the Israelite people are meant to be the people, the family by which God restores the world. Yes. So it's not like... Um, he could have just been born a Greek or a Roman or a whatever. It was meant because this family was the family because of God's promises, because of his covenant, his faithfulness, that he was going to stick through working with this family. But the interesting thing is that God is so faithful to his own covenant that he becomes basically the other, other covenant partner in order to fulfill the covenant with himself. You get what I'm saying? Um, and so God is determined to see this thing through. So part of the reason as well that gentiles are not necessarily there are a few gentile stories almost alluding to what god is going to do when these powers are defeated but the overarching understanding of the biblical worldview is that the gentiles are enslaved to idols so these other gods that they worship there is a dark power behind them that controls and enslaves gentiles in a way that the people of israel were meant to break that right um, and it's only at the cross is that freedom or those dark powers completely defeated so that the gospel can go out into the rest of the yes. world. And that's something we'll explore more with the resurrection and death of Jesus. Um, yeah, yeah, did you have any final uh, thoughts? Yes, definitely. Uh, and I just feel like even during that process, you know, like kind of having, being sure that they, the Israelite are the ones who, because Jesus Christ is not just doing something uh, in the family and everything, you know. Mm. It's kind of being, coming and doing all the things, you know, doing most of the things in the Old Testament, you know. Mm. So it's kind of, there is this hope, like these people, these crappy people, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> these uh, teenagers, you know, young people are the ones who mm. would be go out there and then just share, you know, mm. because this is the promise uh, people and everything you know but also he sees the lack of faith with some of them you know he sees the lack of believing in all that and the extreme um, side of those of those people the extreme part of those people are the Sadducees and all you know yeah. just like then they, they don't want to believe you know but also and then the biggest one of the big thing you know is just there are other people who are not Israelite you know that shows yeah. remarkable faith, you know. For example, that uh, that soldier, you know. Yeah, the centurion. Uh, yeah, yep. centurion. Yeah, centurion, centurion guy. You know, he he shows a remarkable faith. You know, he kind of just even just apply what he's doing. You know, him being leader where he works. You know, just take that and he just applies that strictly to Jesus. You know. Yeah. And then it, it kind of he understands a lot of what Jesus Christ is. Yeah. Doing, you know? The authority. Yes, yeah. exactly. You know, and. 
the people who are supposed to be the one who receive these things and mm. share with the, with the world, they're the ones who kind of struggles and the ones who become the enemy, some of them yeah. the enemy and all that. No, that's really, really good. So the story narrative-wise, let's jump back oh, maybe. Oh, good. I'm sorry, there's another point. Yeah, I, go ahead. I feel like this is a very uh, good opportunity to kind of just touch in a few things that most of us or some students can hear out there. I'm a journalist, I work in journalism in Mozambique, and one of the things that I would hear a lot working with art people is this concept of um, God, Jesus, you know, Christianity is a Western mm. kind of um, uh, religion, you know, it's not something that, that we're supposed to embrace. Yeah, embrace and everything, you know. Um, I, I, I criticize one of the, one of the, the big uh, writer in Mozambique, you know, she, she said the same thing, but what is she using to write? She's using words that are not our words, you know, <laughs> she's using books, paper that did not come from Africa to write all these things. Yeah. You know? So it's just like, we want to choose part of that. But I feel like this concept of the Gentiles, you know, mm. comes into that, comes into yeah. that, you know, because it's not just something that was supposed to start in israel and end there but just something that starts there but just spreads out yeah and i think we'll dive into the full gentile jew how that even was a tension within the early church but i think that's a great point in the sense of first of all it's not a western thing because it was born in palestine yes. in the middle east um but that this is something that was meant to inhabit every culture right that the way of jesus i think the the part where it gets caught up is within the semi, I wouldn't say the modern missions era, but the era just before the modern missions era, it became much, a lot about missions was a, as much a cultural, uh, not exchange, implementation, I would say, not exchange, because there was no ex exchange uh, means that things were being traded, but it was about implementing culture just as much as uh, what we would call a religion. Um, or... It wasn't a discipleship process, right? It was about implementing a way of viewing the world that was very French or very English or very, you know, Belgian or whatever, you know, name the colonial power. And I think that's probably what's rubbed people wrong. You know what I'm saying? Whereas, but I think to throw Jesus out completely is not to recognize that if he really is creator of the world, if he is the creator of all peoples, then he belongs to all people, right? And all people belong to him. Yes. And so they're unique cultural expressions um, rather than being contradictory to, to worshiping God can become an expression towards God. You know, I'm not talking about doing witchcraft for Jesus, but what I'm saying is you don't have to dress like a Westerner. You know, you don't have to make your churches look a certain way. Like the unique expressions of all people can become a part of the gospel message, which is that God is redeeming all people. Because all our cultures have brokenness in them. All our cultures need redemption and redemption in the person of Jesus, right? And that's part of breaking of the powers. The powers still have a hold in some ways, um, but that's why the gospel has to go out. Because wherever the gospel goes, those powers are confronted by the person of Jesus. Yeah. I hope that makes sense, yeah. And I feel like it's our that's that's our responsibility as Christians mm. to understand, really understand that truth, and to really understand the value of the culture that we have, of the identity, you know, that we have. Because sometimes we just feel like 
I think that's a bad image that the colonizer brought in us in the sense of, you know, the way of life you guys were having, it's wrong. Mm. And this is the right way of life. I think the Portuguese are the ones who did that uh, a lot uh, yeah. in their process because they really wanted to control and they were just this really hungry and poor country that were coming and mm. sucking everything from the, the country they were colonizing. So they really needed to find a perfect way to be controlling mm. these people, you know. And one of those, the way of doing that is just ignoring their culture, you know, just bringing them, like, say, hey, you guys have to ignore everything, you know, and just come and have lived this way and all that, you know. And I feel like that kind of got reflected uh, into, reflected into Christianity in the sense of a lot of things that are kind of cultural identity, of, I mean, the way of dress, the way people dress, and the the hair the haircut the haircut yeah. you know and all these things you know if it's something that is really connected to the culture you know like really uh, really Mozambican style you know yeah a lot of churches will will kind of be a little bit you know uh, res- uh, reserved into accepting that they will be a little bit resistant into accepting that you know because they'll say ah our culture is really bad and it's not connected to mm. Christianity you know. And one of the big things is you see those traditional drums we have, yeah. you know, we call them bat- batuki uh, in Mozambique. If you go to a very local church with that, they will just say, no, you guys are bringing uh, bad things in, uh, this, in this church, you know, bringing, bringing cultural things, bad things in this church, you know. But why can't you just use this instrument to just worship God, you know, mm. bring a little bit of your culture, a little bit of your yeah. identity into that process, you know. Yeah. So... No, I think this is a great conversation. And I think, you know, as we're looking for podcast episodes to talk about, I think that's a great yes. one to bring in even Tiamo again and have a conversation of like, what does culture mm-hmm. um, look like under Jesus and how can we redeem that? But yeah, yeah. no, great thoughts, Paulo. So jumping back into the narrative, we have Peter's proclamation, right? So Jesus has been going around with his disciples They've seen transformation. They've seen all these lives change. They've preached the gospel. But it comes to this point where Jesus kind of takes them away outside of Galilee. And, um, man, why am I? Uh, Oh, man. Caesarea Philippi. I was blanking on that for a second. Uh, Caesarea Philippi. And what's interesting is there's a place there um, where the god Pan, uh, a Greek slash Roman god, is worshipped. And this is the gates of Hades. So this is considered like the, the gates to the underworld, right? Uh, translated hell, but Hades is a better understanding. So this is a gateway to the, the underworld in a sense. And this is where Jesus asks his disciples. You know, he's kind of got them away and he says, who do people say that I am, right? Some say Elijah, John the Baptist, yada, yada, yada. And then he turns the question on to them and he says, who do you say that I am? And it's just, again, one of those like gut punching, like, are you going to walk away too? Who do you say that I am? Um, and it's a question that echoes down to all of us, I think. But Peter, uh, representing the others again, says, you are the Messiah, right? We believe that you are God's anointed. Um, and even though they don't really understand, they still don't understand what this means, what it's going to cost Jesus. But the story takes a huge twist at this point. Because now Jesus is willing to reveal 
Well, first he says, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, Peter, but my father in heaven. So it's a confession. Yes. To them, he's finally willing to reveal and say, yes, this is who I am. And then he says, on this rock, I will build my church. And at the very gates of hell or the underworld where people go to die, Jesus is saying, I will defeat this place because the gates of the underworld will not over on you. I will build my church and the gates of the underworld will not overcome it. Because in reality, Jesus is about to defeat death itself. He's going to take the keys of the underworld, right, where people go to die, and he's going to bring God's new life in, right? They don't understand that. They, they Jesus is saying these things, and they're probably like, whatever you mean, Jesus, you know? But um, from this moment on, Jesus basically, uh, and Peter, so yeah, Jesus enters into a dark kind of prediction. He begins to tell them, so we're about to go to Jerusalem. This is what's going to happen. In you know, the leaders are going to hand me over to the Romans, and the pagans are going to kill me. But in three days, I'm going to rise from the dead. And Peter, and I'm sure the rest of the disciples are not having this. He's like, "Yo, Jesus, like, no, quit talking like this." Because that's not what a Messiah does. The Messiah doesn't die by the pagans. The Messiah defeats the pagans. Um, and so Peter rebukes him, and Jesus says, "Get behind me, Satan, accuser!" Right? Because behind Peter's words is again that dark force that wants to throw Jesus off of his mission. And I think what's very, very important for us to understand is as the representative, the Messiah is meant to defeat God's enemies. But it's becoming more and more and more clear in the ministry and life of Jesus, God's enemies are not the Romans. God's enemies is not Babylon. God's enemies is not the Assyrians. God's enemy is the dark force what we would call sin, evil, the Satan, the accuser, behind all of those things. And it's just as there is a, a God's reality, the heaven reality that sits very close um, to our own, there is a dark reality as well that is kind of the disease in a sense that festers in people's heart. There's a, a personality to this darkness that drives people and leads them into broken and depraved practices, literally enslaves themselves to it, right? And so we begin to recognize that Jesus' real enemy is not the Romans, but the power that lies behind the Romans, the power that wields death as a tool to control people, right? Um, And so it's not necessarily made super clear at this point, but you can begin to see a a bigger picture of that, right? So the disciples don't really know what to think about it, but Jesus says from this point on, we're going to head to Jerusalem. I don't know if you have any thoughts before we kind of round it up with that summary. No, I I was just here kind of noticing the change of tone, Mm. you know, like kind of like towards, you know, it changed tones. I feel like this story just kind of puts, brings this tension in this story, you know, in the sense like, yeah, something is about to happen, you know, something really big, really sad is about to happen, and everybody else, other than Jesus, everybody else can't really understand what's exactly something. Yeah, I think the emphasis cannot be made enough that they did not have a concept that Jesus should die. Like, that was nowhere in their minds. They did not think that's what was going to Dead messiahs were failed messiahs. Yes. So Jesus is essentially saying to them, I'm about to fail. And there's no way that they can accept that because they just proclaimed him as Messiah, right? Um, They've finally taken that step to really believe in him. So there's no way that they want him to die. So 
we don't have time to go through the whole long journey of Jesus heading to Jerusalem. This is where you get the story of like Zacchaeus. This is where um, I believe John and James say they want to call down fire on a town in Samaria because they won't let Jesus and them enter. But in the Gospel of Luke, Luke really focuses, a majority of Luke's Gospel up into Jerusalem focuses on this time period if you're interested in this. But it basically becomes this kind of dark cloud, like you said, that hangs over the rest of the story as Jesus slowly makes his way to Jerusalem. And why Jerusalem? Because at the end of the day, Jerusalem is the heart. It's the city of David, right? It's the place where Israel's or Judah's kings rule from. It is the center of worship. It's where the temple exists. It's the center of Jewish life, right? So as God's representative people, right? We've talked about this. The nation of priests, they represent the world. And where do the representative people find their heart and center? It's Jerusalem. So Jesus, in a sense, in the worldview of Jesus and his people, Jesus is going to confront the darkness of his day at the center of the the world, the cosmos, right? Where all the evil, all the corruptness, all the brokenness, all the failed systems of humanity are about to square off with the creator God, right? In the person of Jesus. And that's where we're going to leave for today. And what we'll explore next episode is what does this confrontation look like? Why did Jesus do the things that he did in Jerusalem? And most importantly, um, what was accomplished on the cross and you know, why the resurrection is the greatest day in history. So that's kind of what some of the ideas we'll explore um, and a little bit more in the next episode. Yes. Any final thoughts, bro? Um, yeah, I will challenge the listener just to go back during this week. Just go back and read Luke and just read mm. this story you know, from here because I think we'll be touching a lot on that. You know, just to kind of be prepared for what is coming uh, next week. But yeah, I just, I'm really excited uh, for the next episode because I just feel like there's a lot of things. Yeah, it's definitely the culmination of this podcast, yes, I feel like. If you're yes. if you're watching a movie and there's a climactic kind of in the middle towards the end, this is, this is it, right? Yeah. Nice. Exactly. So yeah. All uh, right. It was nice having this great conversation. Uh, see you next week. See you guys. Hey everyone, this is just a brief reminder that if you've had a question come up from this discussion or you just have a question in general that you want to ask us on the podcast, uh, now is the time to do it. We want to make sure that we get these questions in for the end of the season Q&R uh, and we cannot wait to hear your guys' questions, to read them, and to be able to respond. But we can't do that unless you send them to us. So make sure if you're a part of Kingdom Movement already, you can personally message us your question or you can send them via our Instagram, and we will make sure to read those, and hopefully we will answer your question on the season finale question and answer, uh, question and response episode. All right, thanks, guys.